Hi, and welcome to The 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. This week, Mike heads to the stables in hundreds of horses, Mason gets connected in lines of action, Sarah drafts some veggies and point salad, and I go head-to-head at the White House and Watergate. But first, Ruel leverages relics in Shards of Infinity, Relics of the Future. Humanity's greatest achievement, the Infinity Engine, was used to enslave the world. After a millennium of subjugation, a resistance was born, finally destroying the Infinity Engine and sending its shards throughout the world, changing civilization forever. Four post-human races now struggle to gather the shards and reconnect them, hoping to wield the almighty power of the Infinity Engine. Will your faction be victorious? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at the deck-building game Shards of Infinity and its expansion, Relics of the Future. Shards of Infinity was released in 2018 by Stoneblade Entertainment, with Relics of the Future following later in the year. Both were designed by Gary Arendt and Justin Gary, with art by Aaron Nakahara, Rode Mendez, Thien Nguyen, and Thomas Vergut. Although Shards of Infinity is for 2-4 players, I'm reviewing it and its expansion strictly at the 2-player count, which is generally how I prefer to play deck-building games. You and your opponent play as the leaders of factions trying to rebuild the Infinity Engine before it ends up in the wrong hands. Like other deck-building games, you begin with your personal starting deck. Cards with gems are used as currency to add new cards to your deck, while cards with power are used to damage your enemy. Unlike other deck-builders, you'll start with a King of Tokyo-style character card to track your health and mastery. Mastery is another type of currency that allows you to unlock more powerful abilities and or bonuses. On your turn, play 5 cards and use gems to purchase new cards for your deck from the center row or spend 1 gem to increase your mastery. Use power on your cards to inflict damage on your opponent. After you've played your cards, it's your opponent's turn to do the same. Continue battling it out until one of you loses all of their health. The last player standing wins. Speed. It's what I love about Shards of Infinity. It gets to the fun part of deck building games a lot faster than others in the genre. Now, it may take longer than a half hour during your first playthrough as you get used to the icons, the way you play your cards, and the manner in which you track your health and mastery. But by your second game on, you'll be cranking out games in about 20 minutes or so. In Shards of Infinity, you'll see similarities to Star Realms and especially Ascension, which makes sense since the designers were the ones who created Ascension. There are mechanisms, though, that really take things to another level, such as the use of mastery as a second currency in the game. Mastery is a quick way to upgrade your abilities without buying new cards. Once you hit certain mastery milestones, you'll gain those upgrades. For example, if your mastery is at 10, then a card like the Etherbreaker, which gives you 4 power, now gives you 8 power instead. It's a neat mechanism to make certain cards in your deck stronger without having to buy new cards, and you'll still have the same odds of drawing it since you're not clogging your deck with the weaker card. Thanks to mastery, it's been transformed during gameplay. Mastery also serves as a built-in timer for the game. Every player has an Infinity Shard in their starting deck. Play this card for 2 power, and for every 10 mastery you'll gain additional power. Once you hit 30 mastery is when the magic happens. Draw that Infinity Shard and play it, and it gives you infinite power and you end the game. Within the game are other clever mechanisms that I really enjoy every time I play Shards of Infinity. The four factions in the game lead to big combos, allowing you to draw more cards and gain more gems and power, whenever you play cards of the same faction during a turn. Champion cards are like the constructs in Ascension. When played, these cards remain in your play area, giving you additional abilities, especially when its faction is played on a turn. 
While they don't completely block your opponent from attacking you, it's usually best to do so since it'll weaken you for future turns. And finally, mercenary cards that show up in the center row can be purchased and their abilities are triggered immediately, then removed from the game. I like how these work since you can combo them with your played cards without actually adding them to your deck. It's like getting a one-time benefit. It's not all smash and bash in the game though. Some cards have shields on them that allow you to absorb some of your enemy's big damaging producing hits. Simply reveal them from your hand and some of your health will remain intact. Shards of Infinity excels in giving players a feeling of playing a much bigger and deeper deck builder. With an MSRP of $20, this game punches way above its price range. Shortly after the game was published, fans immediately called for asymmetric abilities for each character. In the base game, each character board had unique art, but functionally they worked the same. With the first small expansion, Relics of the Future, players could now unlock special abilities for each character. Once you've reached 10 Mastery, you immediately get to choose one of two cards that are specific to your character. So, you could choose between a champion that gives you additional shields, or an ally that gives you additional power. Each character features different abilities, and I'm sure future expansions will offer even more. There's also a solo challenge included in the expansion, which I've played a few times. It's not easy to beat, which makes for a solo game that holds up to multiple plays. For deck building fans, I'd highly recommend Shards of Infinity and Relics of the Future. It's a fast-paced game that cuts down on setup and playtime, yet still offers a full and satisfying deck building experience. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. When my buddy Rob introduced Ruth and I to hundreds of horses at SaltCon earlier this year, I'm pretty sure I rolled my eyes so hard that Ruth heard them rolling around. But in typical Rob fashion, he assured me this would be a fun experience, as Ravensburger went through the trouble of printing exactly 100 double-sided horse cards to make a literal hundreds of horses. And while with that level of commitment to the game, I had little choice but to buckle in for some fun. Plus, we'd already agreed it was Rob's turn to pick, so yeah. Playing hundreds of horses is a very Dixit-esque experience, but without the pressure of picking the perfect card. Instead, four horses are flipped face up off the stack into the one through four spots on the stable board. Now the active player rolls a die and reads that section off a card. This could be a short story about one of the horses that say works for the police department, but which one? Now everyone looks at the four options and guesses. Take your chit with the number that you feel best matches the story, and when everyone is picked, you all reveal at the same time. Sometimes it's easy to be on the same wavelength. If three of the horses are making silly faces and one is prancing in a field, that's likely the easy pick. Because while I may personally have picked one of the silly horses, you want to match picks with your fellow players. And for half the die actions, hundreds of horses has thankfully removed the silly bit from Dixit about wanting to match the active player, but not everyone. For story, word, and award options, you can match anyone to score. So be on the wavelength as any other player, and you'll be on your way to some sweet Apple rewards. Oh, sorry, did I mention points or apples? Because they are. It's just science. When you match, you get a face-down token that has one to three apples on the other side. Keep it secret, keep it safe. These are your points for the end of the game. They're totally arbitrary. There's no way to guarantee more points or fewer points for your opponents. Basically, what I'm saying is that if you're playing hundreds of horses for points, you're playing it wrong. Anyway, back to the die and the cards. Horse word and award are the hardest matches for me, because there's so little to go on. Happy? I don't know, they all look happy. Which horse has the fanciest footwork? 
I don't know, and your fellow players probably don't either. But once you flip your number chit, you better believe the table talk will start about how you can't believe they picked that horse as the horse you picked is absolutely the reincarnation of Ginger Rogers. The heart slash take a horse home result is the most desired. This means you get to pick one of the horses to take home with you. Even if no one matches your pick, and you do still want them to match it for points, but even if they don't, you get to keep one of the horse cards. What are they good for? I don't know. I guess technically they're a tiebreaker, but I've never seen it come to the tiebreaker. It doesn't really matter. Point is, everyone is so happy when they roll that heart and get to pick a horse for their very own. Even I felt happiness and joy at picking which horse I wanted, and I really dislike horses. Look, it's a long story involving a much younger me, a horse that wouldn't stop, and me being thrown into a tree. Don't at me. I'm sorry. It's not my fault. Anyway, the last two die faces are new horses, which releases the horses from the stable back into the field, and a whole new set of horses come into the barn for you and your friends to ooh and ah over. Then you get to roll again. And then, free token. Rolling free token is what sealed it for me that hundreds of horses is not about the points because I have never felt so disappointed in getting free points before. No worrying about matching or anything, just here's some points and your turn is over. It is such a letdown. Once all the points tokens are gone, everyone counts up their apples, and the person with the most apples, I mean points, wins. And again, if you're playing for the points, you're playing this wrong. Okay, so let's cover the downsides of hundreds of horses first. It's silly, it's random, you can't really expect any cogent scoring strategy, and player count, 3-4 to four players only, you're killing me here. What are the upsides? Well, horses. Hundreds of them even. Well, 200. Silly, fun, playful table banter, and every time I've played it, at least one person has ordered it. So that's gotta say something about it. Though, I think I surprised Rob by buying it as I groused and grumbled my way through the game, as I often do, but had a blast doing so. Further, while all the adults I've played hundreds of horses with have loved it, my kids have also had a blast playing it as well. Adults love it, kids love it, gamers love it, non-gamers love it. It's just a pleasing game. Which is weird, as I'm sure in some rare instance it could bog down for someone who can't read other players and never matches up. But that's just never seemed to happen in any of my plays. So, caveat emptor and all that, but given my success rate introducing it to other players, I just feel like everyone should at least give hundreds of horses a chance. It's at least a hit for this dry, soulless Eurogamer. Until next time, please don't try and change my mind about horses. They're fine. Really. But if you want to discuss hundreds of horses any further or anything else, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Lines of Action. We discuss accessibility in gaming all the time, but it's almost exclusively linked to, is this game colorblind friendly? We rarely discuss affordability or physical access, and I think that's both a shame and a form of cognitive dissonance. We all want to spread hobby gaming, but then complain when components are low quality, when games aren't deluxified or whatever the current marketing term is, and when we think the publisher should have spent more money on art or packaging. A not insignificant number of hobby game enthusiasts seem to care more about the commercial product they're buying than the game it contains. We've discussed here before what the word game means, but for today, let's separate the game, which is the set of rules and representational playing pieces from the product, the packaged retail version of the game. Lines of Action is a game, but not a product, though there have been a few boxed versions of it. You're not going to buy one, so don't worry about it. As a game, it's playable by almost anyone because it only requires an 8x8 grid and 24 markers in two colors. Originally designed to be playable with a standard set of checkers, or draughts if you like, I prefer to use an Othello board. 
Each player lines up their pieces on opposite sides, making a square around the edge of the whole board. You win by getting all of your pieces together in a clump. On your turn, you move one of your pieces in any direction the number of spaces equal to the pieces on the line you've moved. Hence the name Lines of Action. So if there are only two pieces on the line you're moving, yours and one other, your piece must move two spaces. You can jump your own pieces but not opposing pieces, and you can capture opposing pieces by landing on them, but you don't necessarily want to. By reducing your opponent's forces, you make it easier for them to get all their pieces together in a clump. There are, of course, a lot of two-player abstract games in the world, but Lines of Action is unique in that designer Claude Soucy specifically set out to make a new game using a checkers set. First published in Sid Saxon's Gamut of Games in 1969, Soucy and Saxon would become lifelong friends. Their children eventually married each other, which isn't relevant to this discussion, but it is very interesting. If you don't have a checkers or Othello set, you can obviously pick one up at any thrift store, but you can also play Lines of Action in a number of places online, including Board Game Arena, which has a quite pleasing interface. LOA has a ton of variants, and some serious players, it does have a handful of devotees, prefer a 10x10 or even a 12x12 board. It's a great example of a rules-light, high-strategy game built around a narrow set of restrictions. Rather than being a hindrance, the restrictions are what makes the lines of action so good. The rules are easily teachable to almost anyone, and the complexity comes from the emergent gameplay. Your strategy will evolve over time, or it should anyway, I'm still terrible at it, and you'll start to see patterns of movement emerge. I'm not sure if it's as good as something like Gip for Yinch, but it's definitely pretty close. Lines of Action is what I would consider a truly accessible strategy game, except that nobody knows about it and no one's ever played it. It costs nothing and is playable with probably the second most common game set after a deck of cards. The rules fit on a single 3x5 card, so all that's missing is someone to tell people about it. I've put a rules card with a checkers set at my neighborhood coffee shop, and I'll be distributing more around town this year. There are several very good rules principles on BoardGameGeek, and I think after you play Lines of Action, you'll want to tell everyone about it. In terms of fun math and return on investment, outside of a deck of cards, the best, cheapest fun you're going to have is playing Lines of Action. My personal preference of an Othello set is multifold. I like that there aren't alternating colors on the board. I like the weight and the feel of the pieces, and the contrast is easier on my eyes and brain than a checkerboard. If you're a person who just insists on owning things, there are a few late 80s and early 90s commercial versions of LOA, but hey, good luck getting one. Uh, they're pretty rare and honestly don't even look that great. So who should play Lines of Action? People who like two-player abstracts. People who like tactical conflict as part of an overarching movement strategy. People who are real cheapskates like me. And people who are stuck somewhere without a good game, but where there is a checkers or chess set available. I give Lines of Action 11 out of 12 black and 12 out of 12 red checkers, because your brother took one in the backyard and buried it in a shoebox he called a treasure chest, but he never could remember where it was, so you just took one red checker off the board whenever you played. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. I never go to Gen Con, but every year I follow along on social media to see what events people go to, what games did they play, and especially to find out what will be the new hotness. This year, one of the hottest of the new hotness was Point Salad. Point Salad's official release date was just a few days ago, but it's been available from some game retailers since Gen Con, a little over a month ago, including my friendly local game store, lucky for me. When I first heard of Point Salad, I assumed it was part of Dice Hate Me's series of games with punny names based on game mechanisms, like Deck Building, the Deck Building Game, and Trader Mechanic, the Trader Mechanic Game. Turns out, Point Salad is totally unrelated to that series. It was published by AEG and designed by the Flat Out Games Design Collaborative, who are Molly Johnson, Robert Melvin, and Sean Stankovich. Point Salad is the first game Flat Out Games has published, and if it's at all indicative of what's to come, then I'm very much looking forward to their future releases. 
Point Salad has no fancy components, just a deck of cards, and the rules are delightfully simple. Each card has a picture of a vegetable on one side. There are six vegetables in total, which make up six suits. The other side of each card shows the scoring criteria, like two points for every tomato card, or seven points if you have the most bell pepper cards. The tableau includes three cards showing their scoring side, and six cards showing their vegetable side. Every turn, players draw either one scoring card or two vegetable cards from that tableau and place it in front of them. During your turn, you may also, if you want, flip over one of your scoring cards, showing its vegetable side instead. That's it. Those are the rules. The game ends when all cards have been drawn. Players score based on the scoring cards they have in front of them. Point Salad is a very light game, plays quick, easy to teach and learn. But there are interesting decisions because your score is determined by which scoring cards you chose. If you load up on lettuce cards, but the scoring cards you get don't give you many points for lettuce, you won't get much of a score. And many scoring cards have both positive and negative conditions, like plus three points for every carrot card, negative two points for every onion card. These can help steer you towards what you're trying to collect, but can also come back to bite you at the end of the game. All cards have to be drawn and you might end up having to take cards that cost you points. I once saw a player lose 17 points in his last turn because the player before him forced him to take two cards that were very bad for him. That's an extreme example, but that kind of blocking, which is the only player interaction in Point Salad, is a necessary part of the game, especially at lower player counts. I'm suspicious of a game with two to six players written on the box. In my experience, that game is probably bad at two players, but Point Salad is great at two, Maybe a bit more deliberate blocking is necessary. With a lot of players, cards turn over so quickly that it's difficult for any one player to min-max, line up a perfect combination of scoring cards and vegetable cards. And with that many players in the game, hate drafting is less appealing because you need to grab the cards you need before someone else gets them. You can't wait until your next turn rolls around. But with two players, there's much less competition for cards. You have to keep an eye on what your opponent is doing and not let her rack up tons of cards that score on lettuce and cabbage and all the lettuce cards and all the cabbage cards. Trying to play point salad as a multiplayer solitaire game can lead to a very high score for your opponent. In fact, the highest scores I've seen or heard of in point salad were all in two-player games. With a simple rule set that hangs together so well, point salad feels elegant. It's great to find a game that provides so much fun from so few rules. It plays very quickly, the box says 15 to 30 minutes, and for once, I think that's accurate. We often play two or three games in one sitting. Or you could play it at the beginning of a game night while waiting for everyone to arrive, before getting started on a heavy game, or between bigger games. The card art by Dylan Mangini is bright and graphical and really pops. Point Salad is enjoyable to look at while you play. The color contrast among some of the six suits is not great. Tomato and onion especially have very similar colors. But the suits are also differentiated by the name and an illustration of the vegetable that is clear and easy to see. So I hope this would not present too much of a problem for colorblind players. And while the theme of Point Salad is so thin that I'd call it an abstract game with pictures of vegetables on the cards, still, the vegetable theme is friendly and appealing. Recently, I tweeted a photo of a Point Salad game I'd played, and a friend asked, Is that a game about salad? I want to know more. And that's Point Salad, a simple card game in a small box that I'll be bringing to many a game night. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not trying to keep all the onions out of my salad, that's not a metaphor. I hate onion in salad. You can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. 
I first heard that Capstone Games was releasing a game on former President Nixon and the Watergate scandal, I immediately knew I had to play this game. Political history and journalism. Well, for those who know me in real life, this is exactly right in my wheelhouse. Watergate, published in 2019 and designed by Matthias Kramer, is a two-player, card-driven game that plays in about 30 to 60 minutes. It's similar to one of my absolute favorite games, Twilight Struggle, but it's much less punishing while still maintaining that historic tug-of-war feel of the scandal and in a fraction of the time. In Watergate, one player plays the side of a Washington Post editor trying to connect Nixon to his informers while Nixon is trying to hang on to his presidency and not resign. Each player gets their own individual deck of cards to play with, and a small evidence board that contains a research track sits between the players. There are also cards that keep track of Nixon's and the newspaper's win conditions, as well as who gets the initiative for the round. The player with the initiative will draw five cards in that round and go first, whereas the other player only gets four cards. On your turn, you play one card, either for its value part or its action part. The value part shows a number that you can move either the initiative or momentum token toward you on the research track or move an evidence token the same number of spaces as well. There are three random evidence tokens placed face down on the research track at the start of the round. They get flipped face up when they move, and these tokens are important for the editor to connect Nixon to his informants on the board, or for Nixon to block those connections. The evidence board looks like a giant corkboard with a bunch of lines and pushpins printed on it. When either side claims an evidence token, either by placing it on the five spot on their side of the research track, or when the round ends, it's placed on the board face up by the editor or face down by Nixon. As the board fills up, it starts to look like one of those investigation boards you see often in the movies when someone is trying to uncover a conspiracy and connect all the dots. Also, instead of using the value part when you play a card, you can play the action portion. Sometimes these actions are one-time events that are so powerful that you then have to remove the card from the game. These cards are also how you get informants onto the board. Each informant has exactly two cards. Nixon has one, and the editor has one. If Nixon plays his card first, the informant is placed face down on the board, thereby closing off that pathway to victory for the editor. After all the cards are played, the round ends. Momentum and initiative tokens are awarded to the side they're sitting on, and evidence tokens are placed by their respective winners as well. The rounds continue until one side reaches their objective. Nixon manages to gain five momentum markers on his card, or the editor connects Nixon to two informants on the evidence board. Unlike other card-driven games, Watergate gives each side their own player deck to cycle from, and playing your cards does not trigger good things for your opponent. And while I've heard some criticism of not having a large deck to cycle through and people getting too familiar with all the cards, I think this is a benefit as when players get more familiar with the game, there's additional built-up tension, bracing for that one particular card that your opponent still hasn't played that could totally mess with you. What I particularly love about this game is that you and your opponent can play a game and then switch sides and play another game immediately, and it still hasn't taken up your entire evening. It also has a small footprint that can easily be set up and taken down. The box is small, about the size of a personal pizza box, or for those who are familiar, a patchwork box. I love seeing all the historical figures brought together in this tug-of-war game that is very easy to get into. 
The rulebook and the text on the cards are well done, and there's even a lot of supplemental information about the scandal in the back of the rulebook. And if you're interested in more of the Watergate scandal, I'd highly recommend watching All the President's Men, a movie about the two journalists investigating the Watergate scandal whose reporting helped bring down the Nixon presidency. Gay journalism. And that's Watergate. Thanks, Capstone Games, for sending me a copy of this game. This is Meeple Lady for the Five by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Thanks for listening to the Five by. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at Five by Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Five by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.